the text for today is taken from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and we'll be reading chapter 19, the verses 1 to 37. You'll be able to find that on page 1247 of your pew Bible. Pilate has just stood before Jesus, uh, other way around, Jesus has just stood before Pilate, and Pilate has declared him innocent, and yet because of the crowds, he turns him over to be killed. So we come to John 19. So Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but... He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. 
Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen this test has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And the vo- verse we'll be focusing on today is, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The beloved congregation of our risen Lord, Today is Good Friday. Stores and businesses across the nation are closed because they are, in theory, remembering the death of our dear Lord. Now, it might be tempting at this time of year to scoff a bit at that. Most of those stores aren't even Christian businesses. They just want the holiday. That may be true. It does seem a little strange, doesn't it? But it gives us the opportunity today to be thankful for two reasons. First of all, we can be thankful that not only do we not suffer much persecution in our country, but our government gives the opportunity for businesses to take time off so that Christians like us can have the chance, can have the opportunity to commemorate in a special way the death of Jesus Christ. Second, this is a huge opportunity for people to explain to their neighbors what Good Friday actually means. A few weeks ago, I looked up the date to confirm when exactly it was, and the first link that popped up below the date itself on Google had the heading, when is Good Friday and what's it actually all about? People hear the term Good Friday and they have no real idea what it means. So they look it up or they ask around. Isn't it a blessing To live in a country where we have people who are given the opportunity to come to us and ask us what it's all about. 
If you're on the receiving end of this, take this opportunity to share the gospel and the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, what it means for you with your friend and neighbor. You never know how God will bless it. This morning we'll be taking some time to look at that event that we're commemorating today. And we'll be doing so specifically through the lens of our text. We'll be looking at this passage with the recognition that our Lord Jesus died. And we'll more specifically see two things. First of all, the reality of this death. And second, the necessity of this death. John describes the scene around the death of Jesus in a vivid way. Only in prophecy is it more poetically put. In Psalm 22, the famous psalm which Jesus quoted, crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was on the cross. Israel's king of centuries gone by writes describing Jesus' situation. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written centuries before. Scourged, bleeding, pierced hand and foot by nails and and hanging on a cross, mocked by the crowds and forsaken by the Father, Jesus finally cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. And He gave up His spirit. It seems pretty straightforward, this account of Christ's death, doesn't it? Even with the poetic verses of the psalmist. We see that that's the inevitable end of it. So why is it necessary to ask about whether or not the fact of Jesus' death was real? At the heart of the Christian faith, you'll find the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. For Christ to rise from the dead, he actually had to be dead. Now, since many people recognize that Christ was seen in the flesh, most historians accept the fact that Christ did exist. Whether they're secular or not. And since many people recognize that he was seen in the flesh in the days following his resurrection, but they don't want to believe in the resurrection from the dead, they argue that Jesus Christ never actually died. This is an idea that people name the swoon theory. To swoon is an older word for to faint or to pass out. But was this actually the case? We read the words in our text in verse 30. He said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Can we take this at face value? Did Jesus really die? Or did he just pass out from exhaustion and blood loss, only to be revived later? 
In order to answer this question, there are two facts that need to be looked at. First, we read in the Gospel of John that his knees were not broken. And second, we can look at the results of the spear being thrust into his side. So, first of all, his legs. The beloved apostle confesses in John 19, verse 36, that unlike the criminals beside him, Jesus did not have his legs broken. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Aha! Some shout triumphantly. He was never executed in the same way the other criminals were. Clearly, he was given something to drink. In verse 29, you see that, don't you? And this must have made it look like he died, but really only to temporarily knock him out. Looking like he was dead, he was then taken off the cross and revived again later. Now, there are two problems with this thought. First of all, you need to realize to notice why his legs were not broken. They weren't broken because the Roman soldiers were certain that he was dead. You may say, yes, but they're soldiers. They're not medical professionals. Certainly that may be the case. But even so, as the investigative journalist Lee Strobel points out, they may not be professional doctors, but they certainly are professional killers. Romans did thousands, even tens of thousands of crucifixions over the course of the empire. At the time of the slave rebellion in the days of Spartacus in the first century before Christ, 6,000 rebellious slaves were crucified along one of the major highways leading up to Rome. Rome knew how to crucify her subjects. These men were professionals at death by crucifixion. Now that being the case, why would they break the legs? They broke them in order to hurry death. It was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, and the Jews would not want to have someone hanging on the cross over the Sabbath day. So they wanted them dead sooner rather than later. Now when you're crucified and you're hanging by your outstretched arms, you can't breathe. In order to breathe, you have to put weight on your feet, which are nailed to the cross. Lift yourself up and then breathe. If you break the legs, you can't lift yourself anymore and you asphyxiate. You die because you can't breathe anymore. The Romans knew what they were doing. But when they came to Jesus, where he was standing on the cross, they didn't see the need to do this anymore. These men who were professionals in their line of work looked at him and they were certain that he was dead. But that's only one of the factors that we can look at. Second, we can see in verse 1 of our passage that Jesus had been scourged, which is to say, beaten with a whip made of metal weights and shards of bone embedded in leather to do as much damage as possible. And often this alone would send those destined to be crucified into hypovolemic shock, which is collapse, usually followed by death because of blood loss. And Jesus nearly did die from the scourging. If you'll maybe remember from the other Gospels, as he was carrying his cross, he collapsed. And so Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry it for him. So, this would have been very noticeable to the people. They would have seen, they would have seen him 
suffering on the cross. They would have seen him in his last moments and they would have known when he said, it is finished, that it was indeed finished. The Roman soldiers were familiar with all of this and when they saw him die, they knew that he was dead, but they weren't taking any chances. And so they bring in the spear. We can see this. All of the guards who are on duty, we can see the need for him to die, for them to be certain, from Acts 12. If you know the escape of the Apostle Peter, you get an idea of what happened to Roman soldiers who let prisoners escape. All of the guards who were on duty that night were put to death. So to make absolutely sure that that wouldn't be their fate, they wanted to make sure that Jesus had died. Now, today, the Apostle John wouldn't have known the particular fact of what happens when people are hanging on a cross asphyxiating. Clear fluid builds up around your heart and lungs. Dr. Metherell, a former research scientist, he has done studies on this, and he has noted that this would be exactly what you expected. And so when the spear was thrust into Jesus' side and then pulled out, then what would look like blood and water would pour out. Clear fluid and blood would pour out. And the Apostle John couldn't have expected this, nor could he have known how significant it was for him to include this bit of information. But modern medicine predicts it. John was just writing what he saw. Medical studies today confirm it. There's no way, according to modern medicine, that Jesus could have survived. John the eyewitness confirms this. And we read in verse 35, he who has seen, John's talking about himself here, he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. Jesus died on the cross. He really and truly died. But for Jesus Christ, it was more than death. And why do I say that? Our Lord Jesus Christ didn't just die, but he yielded up his spirit. Day after day, we hear about deaths. We hear about people, we've heard about people in the last couple months who have died in school shootings. We hear about people who die in car accidents or people who die peacefully in their beds. But we never hear about people giving up their spirits. Even when the church deacon Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7 and cries out, receive my spirit. He doesn't give up his spirit. It's taken from him and is, and is received into glory by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is unique in that he gave up his spirit freely and sincerely. There was no need for him to do so. The God-man who could heal at a touch could have healed his own wounds without a second thought. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had Peter put away his sword because he said with a word he could have called down a legion of angels to fight for him, but he did not. Jesus gave up his spirit freely and sincerely. Why did he do this? Why did he suffer such a shocking and horrible fate without a whisper of protest? Why did he call his father to forgive those who'd mocked him while he was crucified? Why did he die? He did it all for us. He gave himself up freely for us. 
We read in Romans 6 verse 23, and we saw it again this morning as we were going through the law, the wages of sin is death. This death that he suffered is the death that we deserved. This is the death that we ought to have borne. Every time that we cross the line, every time we go outside of God's law, we're deserving of death. This world has been described as being divided into two claims. The devil claims this world, and he claims everything that he can get his hands on. He says, it's mine. But God has the original claim. He's the one to whom everything truly belongs. There is no neutral ground. All of earth is a battleground. And consider, as you go through life, whose claim are you supporting? God's or Satan's? There is no neutral ground. When you support Satan's claim by your actions or by standing by and not doing anything, that's sin. And the wages of that is death. Death that should be ours. But for those who believe, for those who express their allegiance to Jesus Christ and put their trust in Him as their sovereign, Jesus took this punishment on Himself. Every sin that you do became part of that infinite punishment that He had to endure. But He did this freely and fully. He was in control every step of the way. The wages of sin is death. And so, being in control of all of it, he died. It was necessary for him to die. This wasn't just a fulfillment of prophecy. It was real. And it was necessary. When we read in our text, verse 30, that Jesus gave up his spirit, he didn't do it randomly. But he did it with a purpose and a reason. And those who say Christ's death was faked, or that he fainted or went into a coma to be revived later. They're missing a deeply important part of the reason of Christ's death. We get a bit of a picture of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 14. Let's open to that for a minute. First Thessalonians 4, the verses 13 and 14. Now, you have to understand that many in the Thessalonian church became confused because they believed that Jesus would come within their lifetime. But as the years went on, they saw people dying around them because of persecution, sickness, old age, and more. And they didn't understand what was happening. What would happen to those who died? Would they see Jesus when he came back? In answer to that, we go to verse 13 of this passage. Paul writes in response, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Christians, says Paul, have a hope that goes beyond this world. And this hope can be found in the death of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand, and if you're ignorant about the reality of the death of Jesus Christ and the meaning of the death of, the Jesus, Christ, of Jesus Christ, then you'll also be ignorant about the meaning of the death of fellow believers. You won't 
you just won't get it when they pass away. And when they're gone, you'll weep and mourn, overwhelmed with sorrow because you have no hope. You'll have no more hope than anyone else who loses a loved one and thinks that that's the end of the road for them. Dylan Thomas, a poet of this age, speaks along that line. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's the cry of hopelessness in the face of death. A shaking of a fist that a God they cannot see, do not love, and find no hope in. But Paul speaks differently. He goes on to write in verse 14, For if we believed that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And with these few words, he gives peace to the Thessalonians. But what makes these words so powerful? I want you to notice two things here. First, look at the different words used to describe the deaths of believers over and against the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is described as death. But with believers, it's merely sleep. What makes these words powerful is what Paul means by them. And that brings us back to our passage where we find Jesus Christ on the cross. For every human being, death is unnatural and has a certain kind of violence, no matter how peaceful someone's passing seems to be. Life is something that's taken. Their spirit is taken from their bodies and nothing they can do can stop it. But for Jesus, it was different. And Jesus is the God-man. He had the power over all creation, even to the point of life and death. He called Lazarus in the grave and the mere sound of his voice let light pierced the veil of the shadow of death and broke the chains of the grave. The decay of Lazarus' body was turned back and it was filled to the brim with life again. And Lazarus walked out. When Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, he surrendered this part of his power, the part that could stave off death. And he did what no one else could do, freely turning over his body to death. Death could not take him, but he freely gave himself to it. And he did that for a very specific reason. Man is finite. Man has a limit. When death swallows him up, it drags him down to a place from which he himself cannot return. But Jesus, the God-man, is infinite. Death cannot contain him. It could try swallow his human nature, but it couldn't contend with his divine nature. And when Jesus' human nature was swallowed up by death, it was done so that, as God himself declares in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, for Jesus, was the seal of God's punishment for sin. Christ's suffering throughout his life, but especially at the end on the cross, was the payment that our sins deserved. But his death was like this signature at the bottom of the page that the account was paid in full. We see this idea expressed more clearly in Hebrews 2 verse 9. 
But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. But having given death this little taste of victory, having paid the price of sin in full and sealed it with a real and genuine death, something wonderful happened. Death, its gates not being able to hold infinity, had them burst wide open, and death itself was led into captivity. And that leads to real and radical change. With Jesus' final words, it is finished. Suddenly, death no longer has dominion. Death doesn't reign anymore. Before Jesus Christ, the saints could die in hope of one who would defeat death. They were ushered into heaven on the condition of Christ's victory. But now Christ's victory has happened, and it's real. Christ's death was a true death. But having died, he conquered death, and now death has no hold over those who die in the Lord. And that leads us to the second beautiful reality that Christ's death meant for the Thessalonians. Those who die in the Lord do not truly die. It's not the end of the road. It's not the beginning of an eternal death and not an entry into the second death. But it's merely a closing of the eyes and a going to sleep. And when in the very next instant their eyes open, they'll be opened in the presence of the Lord. They'll be opened in glory. Christ gave up his spirit freely and willingly. With his words, it is finished. Our sins are paid for in full. When he gave up his spirit, he put the final seal on that payment for our sins. And then by his death, he defeated death forever. We all face death now. Ever since the fall into sin, humanity is born into the world dying. And it's only when he reaches a little over 20 years old that his body starts dying faster than it's growing. It's a simple fact of human biology. And sometimes we even face death sooner than that. Is that a frightening thought for you? I hope it's not frightening for you. And I pray it isn't. Because if you believe in Christ, then for you, your sins are paid in full. The substance of death is gone, and only its shadow remains. And as Charles Spurgeon so eloquently put it, nobody's afraid of a shadow. For a shadow cannot block a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog can't bite. The shadow of a sword can't kill. Death is a mere shadow, and its power is little more than that. We all face the end of our days on this earth. But with the Apostle Paul and the Church of the Thessalonians, we can together confess that it's not really the end. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring him with him those who sleep in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. So as we celebrate Good Friday today, let's remember why it is good. Our Lord Jesus paid the price. For us, it is finished. The ultimate victory is won. Though we fight minor cleanup battles, 
for the remainder of our lives by the power of the Spirit. Through Him, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that our evil desires no longer reign in us, but we are able to have life in Him and to offer ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness to Him. And our death is no more than a falling asleep because Christ has the victory. He died so that our death is not a payment for sin, but puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. So let's rejoice together as we confess with the psalmist in Psalm 17 in closing today. But I, when I awake, shall see your face in righteousness and glory. Lord, with your likeness then before me, how rich and full my joy shall be. Amen.